Reunited, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we are being as unpredictable and fickle as the sea. (laughs) Or a musician. (laughs) We are talking about Lamplighters by Emma Stonex, High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, and also Scooby-Doo, because why not? (laughs) Just sums us up, really. Yep. What are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex, which is very pretty. It is very pretty. I love the sprayed edges. I know, me too. So yeah, this came out this year, 2021, and the novel is inspired by the Eileen Moore lighthouse mystery. So I thought I would briefly explain what that is. Yes, please. In the December of 1900, on Eileen Moore, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, uh, which is one of the Flannan Isles of the Outer Hebrides here in oh, Scotland, right. the three crew on the lighthouse went missing. So to cut a very long story short, a lighthouse crew rotates, so you have like four staff members, but only three on the lighthouse, and then like mm. they rotate out. So the fourth crew member came onto the lighthouse to switch out with someone, and there was no one there. Ooh. all three crew members had disappeared and this is still an unsolved case no one knows what happened that's amazing yeah if you're interested in hearing about this mystery and all the weird details left at the scene i can point you to some podcasts so two of my favorite podcasts this paranormal life and and that's why we drink do really in-depth looks at the case so both of those podcasts have like a paranormal angle so keep that in mind but like both do just lay out all the facts mm. of the mystery as well so i'll link both of those episodes in the show notes because you know they explain what happens or what might have happened <laughs> that's cool so anyway yeah back to the lamp lighters this novel isn't like a retelling of the eileen moore mystery Stonex has moved the lighthouse to Cornwall for one and it's also set in the 1970s and 1990s rather than the 1900s early 1900s and the plot of this book is less about Stonex trying to write like exactly what happened and instead has all these overlapping perspectives and little things that get like brought up and not solved and it's all about creating this really creepy isolation with the sea as this like terrifying backdrop oh god (laughs) the sea is terrifying already yeah so brace yourself (laughs) so one thing i want to note so you're all picturing this this lighthouse is actually referred to as a tower and it's called this because it's not one of those like idyllic looking lighthouses that sits on like a bit of land that like juts out from the coast. It's literally just a tower that sits on a bit of rock in the middle of the sea. Oh, I hate that. So you have to get on a boat to access it. Once you're there, you're there. It's just total isolation. That's like that film that Robert Pattinson was in. Yeah, it, which is based on the Eileen Moore yeah, mystery. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Is that not also based on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah creepy mm-hmm. yeah this book has a few different perspectives and it also jumps around in time so you have the accounts of the crew on the tower in 1972 leading up to their disappearance you've got arthur black bill walker and vince Bourne, and then 20 years later you hear from their partners the women who have been left behind after their significant others went missing without a trace Mm. and a writer has decided to try and solve the mystery and so he interviews these women to try and piece together the story that's cool yeah so i think the word i used to describe this book which I i think i have already used is atmospheric so i thought i'd read from the first few pages to show what i mean this is from the perspective of a boat going out to the maiden which is the name of the tower character jory is taking the relief man over so that boy is the one who's meant to be going over and switching out with someone and this passage signals the beginning of this mystery exciting the sea heaves and churns beneath them blackly rolling slapping and slinging the breeze backs up skittering across the water making it pimple and scatter a buffet of spray explodes at the bow and the waves grow heavy and secretively deep 
When Jory was a boy and they used to catch the boat from Lymington to Yarmouth, he would peer over the railings on deck and marvel at how the sea did this quietly, without you really noticing. How the shelf dropped and the land was lost, where if you fell in it would be a hundred feet down. There would be garfish and smooth hounds, weird, bloated, glimmering shapes with soft, exploring tentacles and eyes like cloudy marbles. The lighthouse draws near, a line becoming a post, a post becoming a finger. There she is, the maiden rock. By now they can see the sea stain around her base, the scar of violent weather accumulated by decades of rule. Though he's done it many times, getting close to the Queen of the Lighthouses always makes Jory feel a certain way. Scolded, insignificant, maybe slightly afraid. A 50 metre column of heroic Victorian engineering, the maiden looms palely magnificent against the horizon, a stoic bastion of seafarer's safety. She was one of the first, says Jory. 1893, twice wrecked before they finally lit her wick. The saying goes she made a sound when the weather hits hard, like a woman crying, where the wind gets in between the rocks. Details creep out of the grey. The lighthouse windows, the concrete ring of the set-off, and the narrow trail of iron rungs leading up to the access door, known as the dog steps. Can they see us? By now. But as Jory says it, he's searching for the figure he'd expect to see waiting down there on the set-off principal keeper in his navy uniform and peaked white cap, or the assistant waving them in. They'll have been watching the water since sunrise. He eyes the cauldron around the base of the lighthouse with caution, deciding the best approach, if you'll put the boat ahead or astern, if you'll anchor her down or let her stay loose. Freezing water splurges across a sunken warren of rocks. When the sea fills up, the rocks disappear. When it drops, they emerge like black, glistening molars. Of all the towers, it's the bishop, the wolf and the maiden that are hardest to land. And if he had to pick, he'd say the maiden took it. Sailor's legend had it she was built on the jaws of a fossilised sea monster. Dozens died in her construction and the reef has killed many an off-course mariner. She doesn't like outsiders. She doesn't welcome people. But he's still waiting to see a keeper or two. They're not getting this boy away unless there's someone on the end of the landing gear. At that point with the drop and surge, he'll be ten feet down one minute and ten up the next, and if he loses sight of it, his rope's snapping and his man's taking a cold bath. It's a hairy business, but that's the towers all over. To a landman, the sea is a constant enough thing, but Jory knows it isn't constant. It's fickle and unpredictable, and it'll get you if you let it sake <laughs> i love the descriptions though gleaming molars i know her descriptions are so good she's such a good writer so yeah she just made the sea sound so ominous and i thought if anyone wants to learn a little bit of gothic terminology this passage is full of sublime imagery the sublime is meant to inspire awe and terror so the line lighthouses always make jory feel a certain way Scolded, insignificant, maybe slightly afraid is a perfect example of how the sublime is meant to make you feel. Mm. As well as describing the maiden as looming, palely magnificent. That's just like a great gothic Mm. text on the whole. So another line from that quote actually inspired my next point. The line about the sea not being constant, about it being fickle and unpredictable. And what I love about this book is that every scene is like that. Um, you're never sure what the tone is going to be when you turn the page and so I thought I'd read this passage out where you can actually see that change in tone like in the middle of a scene you don't really need this context they're watching TV (laughs) this is from Arthur's perspective who's the principal keeper gotcha I take his mug and switch on the kettle out here our days and nights are organised by cups of tea especially this time of year December heart of winter when it gets light so late and dark so early and always so numbingly cold waking at four for my morning watch back to bed after lunch waking again later on the curtains drawn the afternoon gone is it today tomorrow next week how long have i been sleeping the mug's one of frank's 
red and black with Brandenburger Tor written across it. Frank's so finicky he'll certainly take it with him when he goes ashore tomorrow, in case one of us nicks it. We all have our tea different, so whoever's making it has to remember. Even with Vince coming back, and he's been away weeks, we'll make sure we get it right. It shows we pay attention. At home, Helen never gives me sugar, but I don't complain. Just go along with it instead of having the argument. Here we'll get to teasing. You fucking half-wit, that fishing net holds on to things longer than you do. Bill says, do you know Frank puts the milk in first? Bag, milk, water on top. Fuck off, milk goes second. That's what I said. The tea can't infuse in the milk otherwise. If you're using words like infuse, you can get fucked. If I were that PK at longships, he'd be wise to watch your language. But the swearing's like the tea. All the effing and blinding helps the conversation along. If you're swearing at someone, you're saying you're friends and you understand each other. It doesn't matter who it is or that I'm the one in charge. We'll slip back into it as soon as we're here and put it aside as soon as we're ashore. If the wives could listen in on five minutes of it, they'd be appalled. At home, we've got to bite our tongues off before we ask how the fuck she's been getting on and how fucking nice it is to see her. And by the way, what the fuck are we having for our fucking tea? There was this woman last night, says Bill. She did the solar system. There you go then, that's bigger than the sea. Yeah, but it's bloody obvious what they ask, the planets and whatnot. They'd ask about Neptune and Saturn and they'd definitely ask about Uranus. Never gets tired, Bill, you fucking idiot. But with the sea it's less obvious. Everything about the sea's less obvious. I like that. Not me, don't like what I can't see. When Bill first came to the Maiden, I thought, how's this going to go? Some men open up to you and others don't. Bill was quiet, contained. He reminded me of a silverback I saw once in London Zoo, staring out of a plastic box where the visitors came in. I've tried since to work out what exactly I saw in that animal's expression. Anger and boredom, long burned out. Resignation for itself. Pity towards me. There's a lot of time for talk, especially on middle watch. Midnight to four when you find your conversation sloping down all sorts of dark alleys that you never mention again come the morning. Whoever's coming off watch before you will get you up, fetch you tea and a plate of cheese and digestive biscuits and bring it all up to the lantern, where he'll sit with you for an hour before going off to his bed. He'll do this to wake you up, get your brain engaged so you don't fall back asleep when you're there on your own. When it's Bill and me, he'll tell me things he'll wish he hadn't in the light of day how he should have been a different man and had a different life and said no at the points he said yes. How Jenny asks for the seashells he's done, but he doesn't want to give them to her. He'd sooner keep them to himself, like so many other things. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that's so ominous. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's only like a little bit of the chapter. Um, but, yeah, as you can see, it goes from like quite mundane to funny to quite sad and unsettling mm. and yeah I don't really have a huge amount to say about that one I just find it a good example of like how quickly the mood changes on the lighthouse yeah I love that line of when you swear at someone it's to show that you're friends yeah <laughs> it's like that's a very British thing isn't it yeah. <laughs> but yeah on on that note I've got another example of a change in tone and this is a change in style too and this is a scene from Mary's point of view who is Arthur's wife okay Come in. Do come in. I'm sorry it's a mess. It's kind of you to say it isn't, but really it is. Can I make you tea? Coffee? Tea? Lovely. Milk and sugar? Of course. Everyone has milk and sugar these days. My grandma used to take hers black with a slice of lemon. They don't do that much anymore. Cake? I'm afraid it isn't homemade. So, you're an author. How fascinating. I've never met an author before. It's one of those things everyone says they could do, isn't it, writing a book? I did think about it myself, but I'm not a writer. I can think of what I want to write, but it's difficult to get that across to other people, and I suppose that's the difference. After Arthur died, everybody said it would be a good thing to put my feelings down on paper so they were out of my head. You must believe that, and being creative yourself, to have something creative to do makes you feel like a more rounded person. Anyway... I never did write anything. 
I'm not sure what I would have written that I'd want a stranger to read. 20 years, my goodness, it's hard to believe. May I ask why it is you've chosen our story? If you're hoping my husband's like the macho men in your book and I'm going to give you a tale about missions and shipwrecks or whatever it is, you'll have to think again. Yes, it's intriguing, if you believe the hearsay. For me, being on the inside and being so close to it, I don't think of it like that. But you shouldn't feel bad about that. No, you shouldn't. I'm fine to talk about Arthur. It keeps him with me that way. If I tried to pretend it hadn't happened, I'd have hit trouble a long time ago. You have to admit what happens in your life. I've heard it all over the years. Arthur was abducted by aliens. He was murdered by pirates. He was blackmailed by smugglers. He killed the others, or they killed him, and then each other, and then themselves, over a woman, or a debt, or a washed-up treasure chest. They were haunted by ghosts or kidnapped by the government, threatened by spies or gobbled by sea serpents. They went lunatic, one or all of them. They had secret lives no one knew about, riches buried on South American plantations you could only find by a cross and a map. They sailed off to Timbuktu and liked it so much they never came back. When that Lord Lucan disappeared two years down the line, there were those who said he'd gone to meet Arthur and the others in a desert island, presumably with the poor beggars who flew through the Bermuda Triangle. I mean, honestly, I'm sure you'd prefer that, but I'm afraid it's all ridiculous. We're not in your world now, we're in mine, and this isn't a thriller, it's my life. Is five minutes okay? As in the minutes of a clock, if you think of the cake as a clock, that's how big the piece is I'm cutting. Pass your plate then. There we go. I must say I've never got the hang of baking. It seems a thing for women, though I don't know why. Arthur was better at these things than me. Did you know they learned to bake bread as part of their training? You learn all sorts being a lighthouse keeper. Of all the towers, I think the bishop has the best name. It sounds very stately to me. It makes me think of that chess piece, quiet and dignified. Arthur was extremely good at chess. I never played him in that account because we both liked to win, and I wasn't used to ceding to him or him to me. As a keeper, he had to be enthusiastic about cards and games because there's so much time to spare. It's a bonding thing as well, in a game of cribbage or a hand of gin rummy. In the tea, if a keeper skilled at any one thing, it's drinking tea. They'd get through 30 cups a day. On a lot of stations, the only rule was, if you're in the kitchen, you make the tea. Lighthouse people are ordinary. You'll find that out and I hope it doesn't disappoint you. People on the outside think of it as a clandestine sort of occupation, seeing as we're quite closed off in the way we lead our lives. They think being married to a lighthouse keeper must be glamorous because of the mystery of it, but it isn't. If I had to sum it up, I'd say you've got to be prepared for long periods of time apart and short, intense periods of time together. The intense periods are like a couple of distant friends reuniting which can be exciting, but challenging as well. You've had things your way for eight weeks, then a man comes into your home and suddenly he's the master of the house and you have to play second fiddle. It could be very unsettling. It's not a conventional marriage. Ours certainly wasn't. Do I miss the sea? No, not at all. I couldn't wait to move away from it after what happened. That's why I came here, to the city. I never cared for the sea. Where we used to live in keepers' cottages, we were surrounded. It was all you could see from the windows, everywhere you turned. Sometimes you felt you could be living in a fishbowl. When there was a storm and we got some lightning, that was quite spectacular. And the sunsets were pretty too. But on the whole, it's a grey thing, the sea. Big and grey and not much happens on it. Although it's more green than grey, I would say. Like sage or Odinil. Did you know that Odinil means water of the Nile? I always thought it meant water of nothing, which is how the sea made me feel, in a way. So I still think of it like that. Water of nothing. Oh, I love that whole bit. Yeah, and that's, like, just the tiniest bit. Like, it goes on and on and on, this, like, interview. So, yeah, it's obviously a very different style. There are no speech marks either. Um, Mm. It's just written as a block of text because it's an interview being recorded. So what we're seeing is, like, the transcription of it. Yeah. But I love how starkly different these chapters are compared to the Keepers ones. Um, because you still get an unsettling feeling, I think. Mm. Um, I think it's something about like the writer is voiceless and nameless. 
Mary's like chatting on and being very frank about the situation and it's just so interesting and I love how Stonex brought the partners of the Keepers in because it really does add another dimension to the story because it is like a mystery novel, a gothic novel, but those chapters really like round it out, Mm -hmm. I think. That line about like you have to admit what happens in your life, Mm -hmm. like I've not even, I'm not invested in these characters, but like that line nearly made me like choke up when you read it because it's so like emotional. Yeah, it is really interesting as well, the, the wives, because so Mary just believes that they're dead, like she just thinks there was some kind of like freak accident, like the sea came up, they're dead. Whereas like one of the other wives just like still thinks they're out there somewhere, like so you have this really great contrast as well. So yeah, finally, I wanted to circle back to the crew and back to the sea. As you've maybe been able to tell, the sea is such like, a great element to focus on because the imagery and the word choice and the mood mm. of it is also diverse. There's countless ways to write about it, which is why many people do. And this scene is from Vince's point of view, and it is about that. It's about him writing. In the afternoon, it starts to snow. Snow on a tower is weird because there isn't anything to give you bearings. You don't see it piling up on the roof of a car or covering a farmer's field, so you can't guess how much of it has fallen, just that it keeps coming from the sky and the sky's the colour of bone. The sea accepts it quietly. Water, way below, metal dull and motionless. Before I worked in a lighthouse, I thought the sea was always the same colour. Didn't think much beyond it being blue or green, but actually it's hardly ever blue or green. It's a whole load of colours, and they're mostly black or brown, yellow, gold, sometimes pink if it's churning. Up in the lantern, I put my entry in the weather log, sign my initials, then leave it on the desk for the next watchman. The PKs taught me all sorts about how the sea works, and what the weather does to make it a certain way on some days and not others. S for snow, O for overcast, P for passing showers. The pages before are a whole alphabet of letters. It'll never not strike me as magic how the weather changes in no time at all. It's like a person who shouts and then sleeps, and the snow is its dreaming. Letters to denote the state of the weather. Drizzling, gloomy, lightning, squall, thunder, wet dew, haze. I like the feel and the look of them, how some of them feel how they sound. Thunder sounds like a boulder rolling towards you. Haze is slow and lazy. Squalls like your throne in a tiz. Same as the names of the things that live in the sea, which sound like pebbles clinking on the beach. Periwinkle, mussel, sea squirt, whelk. Every few months we get a pile of books brought up out that we share with other lighthouses in the group. A travelling library. I read the lot. I had a foster mum who was big on books. About the only one who was. She'd make a point of reading to us, and it was down to those words sounding different from the words I knew in my life. The words that make up my life were sharp, hard words like oi and fuck and you cunt, bricks for bashing you over the head. Every time I heard a word I liked, that I felt something for, I memorised it. It felt like the more I read, the more free I was in my mind, and if you're free in your mind, then it doesn't matter what else is going on. In prison, I got a dictionary and found odd little words that I thought were terrific. Birds, there are lots of those. Kittiwakes and cormorants, curlews, pipits. They sound like they've got the wind running right through them. I copied words down and learned that when you put them together and messed around with them a bit, you could get something new out of it again. But I'm still stumped when I'm writing my letter to Michelle. Propped up in my bunk when my watch is done, notepad on my blanket, pen in my hand, figuring out how to put it all down and I don't know where to begin. A is for apology. D is for deceit. It's time to tell her the truth. I see her in her London flat, toes grazing her calf as she opens the envelope. Oh, I like that passage. Yeah, it's really good. I just think that's such a great passage, like, for writers. Yeah, (laughs) my little poetry brain was lighting up there. Yeah, (laughs) I just love all the discussion of the different words and, like, how they sound and feel. I like weather words as well. That made me feel very validated when he's like, it feels like it sounds. Yeah. I was like, yeah! It does! (laughs) So yeah, that's the Lamplighters. I've obviously not talked about the mystery, because that's, you know, the point of the book. Um, But yeah, that was just some passages that I really liked. It's like, definitely a really incredible 
gothic novel and I feel like no one's talking about this but it's like definitely one of the best books I read this year that like came out this year mm. so yeah highly recommend it I'm interested in this book very much like yeah I know you're not like a, a hugely sort of gothic reader but it's, it's my it's my kind of gothic though. Yeah, and it's and it's written in a, a writing style that yeah. I think you would like. It's got a lot of um, yeah. like self conscious writingness about it. Yeah, yeah. You can tell that I'm not <laughs> firing on all cylinders. We're recording this in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what are you infatuated with this week? My infatuation this week is High Fidelity by Nick Hornby because apparently this is like 1998, which is when everyone was reading this book. Um, I have the 25th anniversary edition (laughs) and I've never ever read it and so I thought it was about time that I got around to it. Mm. So before I go into the passages and things, I have a little little rant about this book. So as a person who enjoys music writing... I've been told a lot of times that I would love this book, which, as we both know, is a very dangerous way to approach a book. Yeah. Is when you've been told that you're going to love it. To be fair, I did really like it. It's like, it's a fun book, it's a bit emotional, it's a really decent story. It follows this guy, Rob, who's like in his mid 30s, he owns a failing record store, and it charts the few weeks of his life after his girlfriend, Laura, leaves him. So, like, we meet his pals, Dick and Barry, who are exactly how you'd imagine (laughs) Dick and Barry, who are the staff in the record shop. You've got Laura's pal, Liz, who's a bit of a character. You've got his parents, who are, like, I'm trying to think of the name of the show. Like, Everybody Loves Raymond, but British. (laughs) Okay. Um, You've got, like, an American country singer called Marie, who kind of comes in and the three men meet and befriend it's like it's good it's good cast of characters it's funny it's heartwarming it's well told but the message of this book Mm. and the protagonist are fucking infuriating (laughs) okay like he is meant to be so that isn't a diss on the writing it's extremely well done as like an annoying character yeah because he's really awful but he's also relatable so like when you hate him you kind of hate yourself yeah fabulous writing but He's the kind of man who starts off judging everyone based on their music taste and has this like mm. air of superiority about yeah. him, even though his whole life is a shambles. Yeah. He's just the most annoying kind of man. And then while the novel is about him realising that that is his problem, mm-hmm. it makes a really profound realisation of the fact that, like I think the line is, it's not what you like, but what you're like that matters. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, as like a modern female reader, I just think, Christ, is that earth shattering for some people? Yeah. Like, it gives me. Maybe in the 90s that was earth shattering. Maybe it was, (laughs) but like, it gives me, you know, that meme that's like, I can't explain to you why you should care about other people? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the vibe. I'm like, it makes me, I'm glad that the book exists, but it makes me so raging to think about, like, <laughs> this had to be spelled out to people. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So that's my that's my emotional response to this book. But anyway, <laughs> I've picked out some of my favourite passages to read. I don't really have a rhyme or a reason to them, but mm-hmm. I think they're good. They made me smile. And there aren't too many spoilers, but as I've said, it's the 25th anniversary, so like... Yeah, you've had time. You've had time to read it. <laughs> so the first passage I'm going to read is actually just the opening paragraph because I think it's a spectacular opening Mm. on that topic someone on TikTok said I spoiled Jane Eyre for them (laughs) came out in the 1890s like I don't even know what to do with that anyway sorry I mean I've not read Jane Eyre but I would not be mad at someone telling me the end (laughs) okay so this is the opening paragraph of High Fidelity my Desert Island all-time top five most memorable split-ups in chronological order. One, Alison Ashworth. Two, Penny Hardwick. Three, Jackie Allen. Four, Charlie Nicholson. Five, Sarah Kendrew. These were the ones that really hurt. Can you see your name in that lot, Laura? I reckon you'd sneak into the top ten, but there's no place for you in the top five. Those places are reserved for the kind of humiliations and heartbreaks that you're just not capable of delivering. That probably sounds crueler than it's meant to, but the fact that we're too old to make each other miserable, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing, so don't take your failure to make the list personally. Those days are gone, and good fucking riddance to them. Unhappiness, 
really meant something back then. Now it's just a drag, like the cold or having no money. If you really wanted to mess me up, you should have got to me earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So that tells you, I think, everything you need to know about this main character. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's a spectacular opening paragraph because you're not going to not read on there. Yeah, yeah. And I like the Desert Island Discs reference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm going to just skip ahead to his description of the most memorable breakup, which was with Charlie, because... I don't know, I think this passage is, like, really poignant and you go from that, like, rage to this. Mm -hmm. We went out for two years and for every single minute I felt as though I was standing on a dangerously narrow ledge. I couldn't ever get comfortable, if you know what I mean. There was no room to stretch out and relax. I was depressed by the lack of flamboyance in my wardrobe. I was fretful about my abilities as a lover. I couldn't understand what she saw in the orange paint guy, however many times she explained. I worried that I was never ever going to be able to say anything interesting or amusing to her about anything at all. I was intimidated by the other men on her design course and became convinced that she was going to go off with one of them. She went off with one of them. I lost the plot for a while then, and I lost the subplot, the script, the soundtrack, the intermission, my popcorn, the credits and the exit sign. I hung around Charlie's halls of residence until some friends of hers caught me and threatened to give me a good kicking. I decided to kill Marco, Marco, the guy that she went off with, and spent long hours in the middle of the night working out how to do it, although whenever I bumped into him I just muttered a greeting and sloped off. I did a spot of shoplifting, the precise motivation for which escapes me now. I took an overdose of Valium and stuck my finger down my throat within a minute. I wrote endless letters to her, some of which I posted, and scripted endless conversations, none of which we had. And when I came round, after a couple of months of darkness, I found to my surprise that I had jacked my course and was working in a record and tape exchange in Camden. Everything happened so fast. I had kind of hoped that my adulthood would be long and meaty and instructive, but it all took place in those two years. Sometimes it seems as though everything and everyone that has happened to me since were just minor distractions. Some people never got over the 60s, or the war, or the night their band supported Dr Feelgood at the Hope and Anchor and spend the rest of their days walking backwards. I never really got over Charlie. That was when the important stuff, the stuff that defines me, went on. Some of my favourite songs, Only Love Can Break Your Heart by Neil Young, Last Night I Dreamed That Somebody Loved Me by The Smiths, Call Me by Aretha Franklin, I Don't Want to Talk About It by Anybody, and then there's Love Hurts and When Love Breaks Down and How Can You Mend a Broken Heart and The Speed of the Sound of Loneliness and She's Gone and I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself and some of these songs I've listened to around once a week on average 300 times in the first month every now and again thereafter since I was 16 or 19 or 21. How can that not leave you bruised somewhere? How can that not turn you into the sort of person liable to break into little bits when your first love goes all wrong? What came first, the music or the misery? Did I listen to the music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to music? Do all those records turn you into a melancholy person? People worry about kids playing with guns and teenagers watching violent videos. We are scared that some sort of culture of violence will take them over. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about broken hearts and rejection and pain and misery and loss. The unhappiest people I know, romantically speaking, are the ones who like pop music the most. And I don't know whether pop music has caused this unhappiness, but I do know that they've been listening to the sad songs longer than they've been living the unhappy lives. My God. As someone who does have very melancholy music taste, that's like, Yeah, oh. it's a full call out. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... That was the passage that got me invested, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, wow. But it does, it sets you up for the novel um, because that central question keeps occurring. Like, am I sad because of this music or do I love this music because I'm sad? Mm-hmm. Um, which, of all the first world problems to write a book about, it's the one that I would write a book about. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I don't know, It's it feels like weirdly important yeah. somehow that... Well, that's like kind of that what my idea. thesis was about. Yeah, true, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, like, my my thesis was literally called We Are All Sad Girls With Guitars. <laughs> and yeah. it was about how we all learn to be... We learn our emotions from pop music. Yeah, yeah. So I, I subscribe to this narrative, mm. but... 
yeah, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the next passage I'm going to read is from right after Rob meets the singer Marie, who he develops a little crush on in the wake of Laura leaving. And his friend Barry tells Marie where the record shop is. And this is Rob's inner monologue at that point. Okay. I know I'm being stupid, but I don't want her coming into my shop. If she came into my shop, I might really get to like her. And then I'd be waiting for her to come in all the time. And then when she did come in, I'd be nervous and stupid and probably end up asking her out for a drink in some cack-handed roundabout way. And either she wouldn't catch my drift and I'd feel like an idiot, or she'd turn me down flat and I'd feel like an idiot. And on the way home after the gig, I'm already wondering whether she'll come tomorrow and whether it will mean anything if she does. And if it does mean something, then which one of us it will mean something too, although Barry is probably a non-starter. Fuck, I hate all this stuff. How old do you have to be before it stops? When I get home, there are two answer phone messages, one from Laura's friend Liz and one from Laura. They go like this. One. Rob, it's Liz. Just phoning up to see... Well, to see if you're okay. Give us a ring sometime. I'm not taking sides yet. Lots of love. Bye. Two. Hi, it's me. There are a couple of things I need. Can you call me at work in the morning? Thanks. Mad people could read all sorts into either of these calls. Sane people would come to the conclusion that the first caller is warm and affectionate and that the second doesn't give a shit. I'm not mad. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see how, like, he's made to be kind of vulnerable and insecure, Mm -hmm. which makes you feel connected to him. Yeah. But it's, like, the worst parts of your own brain that connect with him. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like, tragic. (laughs) And it makes me angry at him for being so wishy-washy. But then mm-hmm. I, I empathise because everyone feels wishy-washy mm-hmm. <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. The next one is a scene that I really like because it's when you start to realise like just how much of a fucking loser this guy is, but you're still <laughs> you're still rooting for him, which is impressive. Yeah. So he's been calling Laura all the time and lurking about her house. Okay. Lunatic behaviour. But that was probably classed as romantic in the male world 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's never actually been romantic. And that gets revealed here. In this conversation between Rob and Laura's friend Liz. Okay. I like Liz. <laughs> she's, <laughs> okay. She's a good character. Noted. <laughs> it's Liz that stops me phoning Laura all the time. She takes me to the ship and gives me a good talking to. You're really upsetting her, she says. And him. Oh, no, Laura's actually ran off with the neighbour. Oh, okay. Oh, like I really care about him. Well, you should. Why? Because... Because all you're doing is forming a little unit, them against you. Because you started all this. There was no unit. There was just three people in a mess. And now they've got something in common. And you don't want to make it any worse. And why are you so bothered? I thought I was an arsehole. Yeah, well, so is he. He's an even bigger arsehole. And he hasn't done anything wrong yet. Why is he an arsehole? You know why he's an arsehole. How do you know I know why he's an arsehole? Because Laura told me. You had a conversation about what I thought was wrong with her new boyfriend. How did you get onto that? We went the long way round. Take me there the quick way. You won't like it. Come on, Liz. Okay. She told me that when you used to take the piss out of Ian, when you were living in the flat, that was when she decided she was going off you. You have to take the piss out of someone like that, don't you? That Leo haircut and those dungarees and stupid laugh and the wanky right on politics and that... Liz laughs. Laura wasn't exaggerating then. You're not keen, are you? I can't fucking stand the guy. No, neither can I, for exactly the same reasons. So what's she on about then? She said that your little Ian outburst showed her how... Well, sour was the word she used. How sour you've become. She said that she loved you for your enthusiasm and your warmth, and it was all draining away. You stopped making her laugh and you started depressing the hell out of her. And now you're scaring her as well. She could call the police, you know, if she wanted. The police? Jesus. One moment you're dancing around the kitchen to Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Hey, I made her laugh then, that was only a few months ago. And the next she wants to get you locked up. I don't say anything for ages. I can't think of anything to say that doesn't sound sour. What have I got to feel warm about? I want to ask her. Where is the enthusiasm going to come from? How can you make someone laugh when they want to set the police on you? But why do you keep calling her all the time? Why do you want her back so badly? Why do you think? I don't know. Laura doesn't know either. Well, if she doesn't know, what's the point? 
there's always a point. Even if the point is to avoid this sort of mess next time, that's still a point. Next time. You think there'll be a next time? Come on, Rob, don't be so pathetic. And you've just asked three questions to avoid answering my one. Which was the one? Ha ha. I've seen men like you in Doris Day films, but I never thought they existed in real life. She puts on a dumb, deep American voice. The men who can't commit, who can't even say I love you, even when they want to, who start to cough and splutter and change the subject. But here you are, a living, breathing specimen. Incredible. I know the films she's talking about and they're stupid. Those men don't exist. Saying I love you is easy, piece of piss, and more or less every man I know does it all the time. I've acted as though I haven't been able to say it a couple of times, although I'm not sure why. Maybe because I wanted to lend the moment that sort of corny Doris Day romance, make it more memorable than it otherwise would have been. You know, you're with someone and you start to say something and then you stop and she goes, what? And you go, nothing. And she goes, please say it. And you go, no, it'll sound stupid. And then she makes you spit it out, even though you'd been intending to say it all along. And she thinks it's all the more valuable for being hard won. Maybe she knew all the time that you were messing about, but she doesn't mind anyway. It's like a quote. It's the nearest any of us get to being in the movies. Those few days when you decide that you like somebody enough to tell her that you love her and you don't want to muck it up with a glob of dour, straightforward, no-nonsense sincerity. But I'm not going to put Liz straight. I'm not going to tell her that this is all a way of regaining control, that I don't know if I love Laura or not, but I'm never going to find out while she's living with someone else. I'd rather Liz thought I was one of those anal, tongue-tied and devoted clichés who eventually sees the light. I guess it won't do me any harm in the long run. I love this passage so much because I love how, like, similar to what you said with the lamp layers, it goes from really quite funny Mm -hmm. to, like, really serious. Yeah, yeah. And, like, so sardonic. But, like, he's he's the worst because it's, like, it's genius because showing that awareness, Nick Hornby is really just peeling back the lie that people tell themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that everyone relates to at least something in that. Yeah. But it's fucking horrible to read. Yeah, 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 I agree. Like... This book, as much as, like, a lot of it underwhelmed me from the hype, that, mm. like, there's passages like that that are very astute, I suppose. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I get why people say this is, like, a modern classic. Because mm-hmm. that, admitting, Rob admitting that it's all a lie and that he's doing it to feel like he's in the movies is not something that you're supposed to admit. Mm-hmm. And the fact that even after that, like, that made me hate him. I was like, I hate for saying that (laughs) because it's true yeah yeah and then you still want him to win (laughs) yeah because I I suppose he's just painted him as like a very real person and you kind of want the real person to win in the end don't you yeah yeah but also he's like like I've met this person (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I hate him so I'm like (laughs) (laughs) it bugs me so much but yeah, that's that's pretty much me, to be mm-hmm. honest. Anything else does give away a lot of major plot points, so mm-hmm. in case anyone does want to read it, I haven't gone there. But yeah, do take it with a pinch of salt. It captures a very particular brand of masculinity at a very particular time. And it's funny and sharp and well done, but it should not be the book that you use to download your new personality. <laughs> like, don't start a personal era yeah. with high fidelity. But yeah. it is worth a read. I don't think I've ever read any Nick Hornby, but I am intrigued. His essays on music, he's got a book called 31 Songs. Yeah. And it is incredible. I think that is what I would first want to read from yeah. him. Yeah. Like, I would I would have done an infatuated on that, but it's, it's quite dense. Mm. So I'm not going to, but I would really recommend it. And he does write... Like, I've not so much gone into it in this book, but he does write about music beautifully. Yeah. Like, he's so passionate about it. Yeah. Um, and that really comes through. So, it's, it's a very good book for music lovers, but... Nice. Oh, my God, it's the perfect music fuckboy book. <laughs> so... This week we're talking about world building for a writing section. Mm -hmm. How much it means to us and how much time we spend doing it. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start us off with your thoughts? Yes. So we kind of asked the question, you know, how important is world building? How much do you consider it when writing? I'm curious. I wonder if our opinions will be different because our writing styles are very different. Mm. But I would say it's very important. 
but I would probably prioritize character over world building. Okay. Because I think character is the most important thing because character is what propels the story. But I do think world building, so like your physical settings, your sort of social political settings, the rules of the world, that all supports your characters and your story. Mm. So for like me using like my current project as an example, my first draft was mostly dialogue, inner monologue or like narration and like the story beats. And I would just be like, this is the setting, it looked like this. Mm. But now on redraft, I'm focusing way more on the world building and how that can like affect your text, how it like makes the characters feel, um, how it can like give them sort of restraints or freedom, like what the world kind of like provides them, mm. I guess. I remember watching a panel between Lee Burndigo and Cassandra Clare once on world building. Um, and obviously they're both fantasy writers, so they were speaking more about like building a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. But some of the things they said have stuck with me um, and would apply to like any kind of writing and those where you're not going to know what you need until you write it. So like writing your plot will guide you to whatever rules you need to put in place. Okay. Like what locations you need, how you need your characters to feel. They also said to treat your world building as a first draft, just as you treat writing as a first draft. So like similarly to that point, allow your world to change as your story changes and you work out Mm. what you need. (laughs) And lastly, they both said a great place to start when considering a world, whether it's fantasy or not, is to decide how power works. So pick up a book that you like the setting of and see how they write power in place and how those interact with each other. Mm. so that could be like magical power political power social power but yeah i do think it should be noted that at least for me world building is quite a subconscious thing to write along with many things because i feel like i don't often realize i'm doing it when i'm in the middle of making the decisions Mm. and also there are so many different kinds of writing styles or even just styles of novel where it doesn't really matter what the setting is (laughs) they don't really need a fully fleshed out setting because that in a way is world building I suppose you could argue but yeah that's my gut opinion is that I normally focus on character first but then the world building is like the support system Mm. to the character if that makes sense I really like that and I like what you just said about Cassandra Clare and Leigh Bardugo saying that it should be fluid and that it should change Yeah, because so my thoughts on world building are a bit messy but Mm. I will try and explain them yeah I have a big problem with rigidity in world building. Yeah. And so, like, as a consumer, I like my world that I'm reading to be, like, vivid and alive, but I'm not an avid fantasy or sci-fi reader. I only dip my toes in. So I'm not there to, like, interrogate the world. Mm-hmm. Like, I want it to be rich and I want it to be solid, mm-hmm. but I don't need to see the scaffolding. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's a danger with world building as a reader and a writer that it can take over the story. Mm-hmm. And a world shouldn't be built just to serve a story, but if it feels like the story is incidental to the world, then that's yeah. boring to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I've thought a lot about this because world building is something I find, again, like you, probably quite instinctive, but quite difficult because I'm not good at keeping rules in my head. Yeah. So the best way I've come up to describe the difference to me is the difference between like art and design. Mm-hmm. because I feel like world building is design like it's literally architecture mm-hmm. and design is important because it can be used cleverly and with like a lot of creativity to interact with the story mm-hmm. but it should be there to enhance the art yeah. which is the story and sometimes I feel like particularly in heavy world building genres like sci-fi and fantasy where you talk about it more a lot of the time it feels like the writer showing off how clever they are and how much thought they've put into the world which if you've got a good story, it shouldn't really matter. Yeah. What I will say on the flip side, though, is that a lot of literary and contemporary realist fiction drops world building entirely, calls it, like, minimalism, and that's just boring. Yeah. So in my own writing, I guess that the answer is to build as much of a world as is fun to write, Mm -hmm. but no more. Yeah. Like, I don't sit stressing about the mechanics of it because, Mm -hmm. like, first of all, my genre is magical realism, so I don't have to explain myself. Yeah. But B, I don't think that I or the readers that I'm aiming at would care enough to question a lot of things. Yeah. 
So I think that it's good to establish some real solid like quirks and rules because, like you've said, it places limits on your characters, which mm-hmm. pushes your creativity. Yeah. But I'm trying to think. Of, I tried to think of a facet of world building that I could use of, as an example, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people think that it has to be. Yeah. Not real. But like in my novel, everyone's name means something, mm-hmm. and obviously everyone's name means something anyway. But like yeah. in that world culturally names are more imbued with meaning yeah in my scotland than they are in real scotland yeah yeah so like i feel like that's world building but it's not drastic yeah you know what i mean i also i almost think like it's good for you as the writer to sort of think about all your rules and like work out where things are i've got like i have a map for my mm. story even though it's set in like a real place but it's not really so mm. like i have a map so i know where everything is but i don't tell no. the reader is like this is exactly where this setting is and we're going to walk in this direction to get to this like yeah no but like if you know it in your head it sort of like comes out in the writing yeah, it's more without convincing. without you just saying it mm-hmm. because you just know it to be true in your head yeah. so i almost feel like that's kind of how you should approach world building like you as the writer should think about it a lot but you shouldn't be sort of spelling it out to your readers exactly i feel like a lot of the time people get so invested in how much thinking they've done about it that then they feel they need to write it in yeah and i just think "Mm, yeah i don't really care about reading that yeah i'm almost thinking because i think it's just because lee birdie was mentioned but like something like six of crows like even just when they're talking about money like she doesn't need to explain to you what all the monetary values of things are but she just kind of says you know this many Kruger and you're mm. like okay cool I get that that's a lot of money like yeah. just from the way they're talking about it mm-hmm. and that's almost I would argue a kind of world building yeah. like just having your characters say something as a fact and you just kind of go with it absolutely yeah I think that like there is a place for the really detailed like Lord of the Rings type yeah Harry yeah. Potter type world building that is fun yeah but I think that in general, like, most people aren't going to write that kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, yeah. And I don't think you need to. And I think when people hear the phrase world building, they think of Lord of the Rings developing yeah. a language. I know, you hear the words world building and you think fantasy, don't you? Yeah, but, but I don't think yeah. it has to be that. Cool. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> we agree. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do. My quick fire favourite is a song from Hippocampus of their newly released EP and the song is called Sex Tape. I'm addicted to this song. Every time it's been like sunny while I've been like walking to and from work, I've been playing it because it's just like such summer vibes. It's just so cool. The song is about how like people from the same town can go on like really different journeys throughout life. Um, but the reason I love it, besides just like the sunny vibe, is that the chorus just makes me laugh every time. So part of it goes, Thank God for all the Christian mothers. I've been busy sweating under the covers of lovers. I'd have been you if I wasn't another. Hot shot with the camera is filming my sex tape. Probably gonna win at Sundance. Get big just to reinvent myself. <laughs> and I'm just like... They had the right combination of, like, ego and humility mm. to write that line, probably going to win at Sundance. <laughs> like, so funny. It's just so that good. That is really funny. Um, yeah, it's just also just a really good song. So I recommend giving it a listen. That's my quick favorite. I think I've heard you playing it in the kitchen, actually. As yeah. Well. Yeah. It's, oh, it's so good. Nice. Uh, what's your quick power favourite? So mine is actually a poem that I read recently. Ooh by this playwright and poet that I got the chance to talk to, Hannah Lavery. And she's very cool. She's written a production of Jekyll and Hyde that's told all from the women in the story's perspective Mm. because she had this idea that they wouldn't be shocked by Hyde's violence because the women are never shocked by the violence. Oh, yeah. And it's a one-woman show, so, like, the actress transforms into all the different women, like Jekyll and Hyde. It's very cool. Anyway, big gothic vibes. (laughs) But anyway, she's a Scottish woman of colour and she wrote this poem called Scotland, You're No Mine about, like, the kind of cultural amnesia of Scotland where it's like, we weren't involved in the slave trade. Mm. But I thought I'd just read it out because it's it's short and it's really good. Mm-hmm. And for anyone that's not a Scottish listener, I think this might give an idea of, like, Scottish poetry that's modern. Yeah. That isn't Rabbi Burns. So, 
This is Scotland, you're no mine. Scotland, you're no mine, you were no his, and I don't want you. So go ahead, say I don't belong, with your sepia-tinged cross-eye sweeping over all that swept-away, blood-stained, sweat-stained sugar for your tablet. You macaroon, you rotten, gobby, greedy, thieving bastard you, sitting atop that shite and broken bones, weeping poor me. Fuck you! I will dance jigs on your flags, blue and white, blue and white and red. It doesn't matter, but you wee chancer. Fuck! For making us complicit, handing us whip and chains and officer's coat, a civil service pen, a queen to love, and lay me out. I love you, with all your mountain time and all your curian, and you can say I didn't belong to you. Go on, but I am limpet stuck on you. So fuck you for no seeing one of your own. I will here. I will spill here. My blood and your secrets bleed into you, root and earth, and you, forever pagan, will, in the spill and the seep, see all you really are. So fuck you, my sweet forgetful Caledonia, with love, fuck you. <laughs> I love that. Me love too. They got um, curry in. Yeah. In. <laughs> I love your wee chancer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, it's so fun to say. Mm-hmm. And it only sounds good in a Scottish accent. Yeah, yeah. I just I enjoyed reading it out. Okay, do you have a route for us? Somewhat. Okay. <laughs> I thought that I would just do a little exploration of the phrase high fidelity in case any of our listeners weren't familiar with the pun, because it's a good pun. Mm-hmm. So the word fidelity is traditionally used in terms of marriage. To practice fidelity is to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Comes from the Latin fides, meaning faith. High fidelity or hi-fi records are therefore records which promise a high quality reproduction of the sound that is faithful to the original. So as much as the main character infuriates me, it's a very clever little pun on the idea of being faithful to music versus being romantically faithful. So it's a good title. That is a good title. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Nick Hornby. <laughs> Do you have an insight for us? I do. It's a wee bit longer than usual. Love it. Because, Here for this. So, some of you will remember an episode last season where I looked at Enneagram, which is a concept album by Sleeping At Last, where each song is from the perspective of the different Enneagram numbers. Mm. And I mentioned that in amongst their ongoing Atlas project, which the Enneagram album falls under, they have an album called Space, where each song is named after a planet. Uh, or the moon and the sun as well Mm. and maybe i'd look at that so that's what i'm doing today yay (laughs) so i thought i'll just explain or i'll have ryan o'neill the singer songwriter explain what the concept of the album is so he said in an interview when i was pulling the concepts together for the atlas project i was most excited to write the songs inspired by our solar system that led me to study as much as i could about the makeup of each planet just to find musical ideas hidden within each planet and somehow try to write a song that would do justice to the beauty of our solar system. And he later says, I'll give an example of how I came up with one of the planet songs. For Mercury, I learned about what makes up that planet, an iron core in a silicate shell, and decided the music would be all metallic instruments. The drums are made of car parts and it's mostly French horn brass. I love that. Yeah. So... We maybe talked about like me looking at our ruling planets, okay. um, but I'm going to be honest, didn't see much connection there. Fair. Um, however, when I was looking into this album, I noticed that two songs do pair together in a really lovely way, and I just think that you and the listeners will appreciate the story behind them. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about Jupiter and Saturn. Cool. So this is Ryan's description of Jupiter. He says, I wrote this song from the perspective of Galileo Galilei, who discovered Jupiter's four moons, which are consequently named the Galilean moons. Mm. The song is divided into four parts, representing each of the moons Mr. Galileo discovered. If you listen close, you'll hear some radio static that NASA recorded of Jupiter's unique storm systems. Because Jupiter is the largest planet in the solar system, it's an awful lot of planet to explore. So as I wrote this song, I tried to have it constantly progressing into new territory. I love conceptual musicians. <laughs> Me too. 
So obviously I really recommend listening to this song to hear that progression he mentions as most of the song is instrumental um, and it really does like change as it plays out and it's cool to hear the sounds of Jupiter's storms. They yeah. sound very cool. But what I can do today is read out the lyrics. So remember these are from the perspective of Galileo. Wrote it down in the winter of 1610, just a secret under lock and key until then. While collecting the stars, I connected the dots. I don't know who I am, but now I know who I'm not. I'm just a curious speck that got caught up in orbit. Like a magnet, it beckons my metals toward it. Make my messes matter. Make this chaos count. Let every little fracture in me shatter out loud. Make my messes matter. Make this chaos count. Let every little fracture in me shatter out loud. Astronomers make me really sad. Yeah. Just you wait till this <laughs> next one. <laughs> so now I'm going to tell you about Saturn, which is the next song on the album. So Ryan says about this. I liked the idea of following Jupiter with a song perhaps written from Galileo's children's perspective. It's very much a song about losing someone close and deeply loved, but it's about the good they left behind in our lives and how to reflect that in your relationships in front of you. Saturn is of course our most photogenic planet with its gorgeous rings, so musically I aimed as best I could to write something worthy of such good looks. I held the words beautiful as a measuring stick constantly as I wrote the music, asking myself, is this beautiful enough? This is, of course, an impossible task, but I had fun with the challenge. And I would just like to note here that Saturn is my favourite song on the album, like before I even knew that, because it is the most beautiful. So again, please listen to hear the instrumentals, because oh, it's so good. I'm sold. So yeah, on to lyrics, which again are from Galileo's children's perspective. You taught me the courage of stars before you left. How light carries on endlessly, even after death. With shortness of breath, you explained the infinite, how rare and beautiful it is to even exist. I couldn't help but ask for you to say it all again. I tried to write it down, but I could never find a pen. I'd give anything to hear you say it one more time, that the universe was made just to be seen by my eyes. With shortness of breath, I'll explain the infinite how rare and beautiful it truly is that we exist. Oh, man. Yeah. That middle section does actually repeat, but I just read mm. it out the one time. But... Oh. See, I like I hear things like that and that, and then I understand why I wanted to be an astronomer and why yeah. I went to do physics to begin with. Because yeah. it is pretty fucking beautiful. I know. But I'm not good at maths. <laughs> So yeah, that's two songs from Sleeping At Last, Atlas Space. Um, the deluxe version also has instrumental versions of all the songs. And yeah, I stopped myself from like diving into other songs after I found that connection between these two. Um, so I might talk about others one day if I find other cool things. But yeah, hope you enjoyed more Sleeping At Last content. <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. And I, I love that Enneagram album. So yeah. I will be listening to that you one. You will next. like the space album. <laughs> I've, like, I've had it actually in my library because I saw it and I thought yeah. I will like that. But I'm like rubbish at going and listening to new music yeah. until I'm really in the mood for it. Yeah. So, But now I will be. <laughs> Right, so we have a question today, <laughs> submitted by friend of the podcast D, and it is a silly one, because we're in a silly mood. <laughs> Which Scooby-Doo character is your co-host most like? I really struggled with this. Okay. Because honestly, like, if I tell you my answer and you're like, I don't agree with that, I'd probably be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I narrowed it down to a mix between two. Okay. okay? So person one is Velma. Okay. Because you're very loyal and you're ve like you're quite practical when you're like focused in on something. Something like cool. However, you do have some very chaotic energy. So I feel like Shaggy is also an option. <laughs> <laughs> because you can be spontaneous and you can be like fun and also you just like really love food. Yeah, that's true. So I just feel like you're like a mix. <laughs> that much. 
Shaggy. Somewhere in the middle of them is you. I'm just kind of relieved that you didn't say Daphne because she's just always getting herself into trouble and I really thought you were going to say that. <laughs> but I don't, I feel like Velma and Shaggy is more accurate. So yeah, okay. I, I appreciate that. I also really struggled with mm. this one because first I was like, oh, people would expect me to say Velma for you because you're really clever. Yeah. Or maybe Daphne because you dress well. But you're too cool to be Velma and you're too functional to be Daphne. <laughs> so I actually, when I thought about it, because I got very deep in my feelings and my nostalgia about Scooby-Doo mm. for this question, I went with Scooby. Okay. Because a lot of things make you nervous and unsure, <laughs> but you still always show up for people anyway. Yeah. And you always, like, go through and do all the, the scary things. So I think that you're Scooby. Aww, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> And and you appreciate food too. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd maybe have said Daphne because I feel like she is also a bit of the like caretaker of the group, which I kind of am a bit. Yeah, you are but... a wee bit, but no, it's, that makes sense. Yeah, you're... I think that you're yeah. more of a Scooby, which yeah, nice. I stand by. <laughs> I enjoyed that question. Yeah, it was a good question. <laughs> Thanks, Dee. <laughs> That's us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, including the infatuated mix, which has all the music we mention. Yeah, you get, want to get that space songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Followed by sex tape, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Um, and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there yes please do that we like to shout into the void but it's nice to think someone's listening (laughs) see you next time hashtag Galileo (laughs) Bye. bye